From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Experts believe global warming will make weather systems more volatile and energetic, and some think there might already be some signs in tornadoes. Yeah, I mean, I think climate change is having an effect on the tornado activity. There are some ominous indicators, especially with the clustering and perhaps the length and width of these tornadoes. Also, reducing pollution from school buses and a major award for a pioneering researcher who identified toxins making children sick. Once we identify as harmful environmental exposures, they, by their very nature, are preventable. And the potential benefits are huge. The costs of a childhood illness due to environmental contaminants were estimated at $76 billion. We'll have that and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from United Technologies, innovating to make the world a better, more sustainable place to live. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Boston and PRI, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. A warmer world is leading to more volatile weather events, including extremes of heat and cold and rainfall. 2014 was the hottest year on record, and with the rising concentration of greenhouse gases, that trend of extremes will likely get worse. But it's a challenge to predict how that might affect tornadoes. It's not that there are more of them, but there do seem to be more ferocious bursts of tornado activity, with the biggest more than a mile wide and as many as 70 touching down over a couple of days recently. Professor James Elsner of Florida State University has been looking into the possible links between climate change and tornado behavior and published some results of his work in the journal Climate Dynamics. The number of tornadoes from year to year doesn't change very much. We get about a thousand tornadoes a year, some years more than others, but there's no long-term trend. So what we looked at instead is how many days are there with tornadoes? And we found that there's actually fewer days in which tornadoes form. And so that means that a day with tornadoes has to have more tornadoes if the total number isn't changing. Why do you think that is? Why are tornadoes bunching up? Well, it's not clear yet. What we speculate is happening is this, as the climate warms, we're seeing more moisture in the air, more humidity. And that's really the fuel for tornadoes. But at the same time, the higher latitudes are warming faster than the lower latitudes. And so that tends to decrease the amount of winds that are blowing aloft above the ground. And so you need both of these ingredients. You need strong winds blowing above the ground and you need humidity to create the conditions for tornadoes. And so it seemed like a, a kind of a draw. So it, it appears that even though we're seeing less or slower winds, when they do blow fast on occasion, then the extra humidity creates days with lots of tornadoes. So tornadoes are now occurring more in clusters. How close together are they, and how long between touchdowns? On a given day, we can get a family of tornadoes. We can get a single thunderstorm producing a tornado. We call that a supercell thunderstorm. And that tornado then can last anywhere from just a few minutes to 20 or 30 minutes. On average, only about five, six, maybe up to 10 minutes 
but then it can recycle. And as the storm continues to move downstream, maybe an hour later, two hours later, it can produce another tornado. So we're seeing this type of thing happen more regularly. Typically, how many tornadoes come in these clusters? Well, that can range. We can see a single isolated tornado. But what we're seeing is generally between 10 and 30 tornadoes in a given cluster. Wait, you said 30 tornadoes on the same day near the same place, really, or in the same storm system? Yes. Well, I mean, not at the same location exactly, but over an area the size of uh, eastern Kansas, for example. I mean, I think the fact that they are bunching up, both in space and time, is cause for some concern. Now, as I understand it, the United States has more tornadoes than any other country in the world. Why is that? Well, the United States is is in a unique position, at least the central U.S., in that um, there is a mountain range to the west that runs mostly north to south, the Rocky Mountains. And then in close proximity to that, Gulf of Mexico. And the Gulf provides the source for the heat and moisture. And when that starts flowing north in the springtime, that encounters the fast-moving winds above the ground flowing over the Rocky Mountains. And so those are the conditions that tend to produce the tornado outbreaks. What about the strength of these tornadoes? How did today's tornadoes compare to the ones a decade or two ago, do you think? Well, we've been working on that problem also. Um, I think that question is important, but it's difficult to determine from the data we have because there have been changes in how we record tornadoes over time. But there are some indications that tornadoes are lasting a little longer. They're staying on the ground a little longer, so their paths are getting longer. Their widths are also getting longer. The damage width is getting longer. And so this indicates that they have more energy than they did in the past. Again, it's not clear whether that trend is due just to better ways of uh, surveying the damage or whether that's part and parcel of this warmer, more moist atmosphere that allows the tornado to stay on the ground longer and become more ferocious. What does your work tell you or suggest about the future of tornado events as, well, the climate continues to warm? Well, most of my research is based on looking at the historical record. And so it's difficult to just extrapolate these trends that we are starting to detect into the future without a strong theoretical background of why this is occurring. So that has to be worked out yet. But There are some ominous indicators, especially with the clustering and perhaps the length and width of these tornadoes. And so I think we have to pay attention. We have to do more research, try to understand uh, why this is occurring. Number one suspect, climate disruption? Yeah, I mean, I think climate change is having an effect on the tornado activity. I don't think folks would have imagined this even 10 years ago. But I think there is a connection and, you know, it may not manifest itself in the next couple of years, but I think there is some indication that uh, we could see more powerful tornadoes, uh, longer lasting tornadoes, and uh, just more of a cluster of these tornadoes going into the future. James Elsner is a professor at Florida State University and co-author of the paper, The Increasing Efficiency of Tornado Days in the United States. 
Professor, thanks so much for taking the time with us today. You're welcome. Now think talcum powder, and you're likely to picture chortling babies and smiling moms changing diapers. Nothing seems more safe and wholesome, and indeed many women use talc daily as well for feminine hygiene and after showering. Shower to shower, marketed to women, a sprinkle a day keeps odor away. And Johnson's Baby Powder, which is more than 100-year-old product, one of the legacy original products of the Johnson & Johnson Company. That's Myron Levin, founder of Fair Warning, a news site that focuses on public health, safety, and environmental questions. He's just written an article about long-held concerns about talc's possible association with ovarian cancer and the hundreds of lawsuits filed on behalf of women or their survivors against Johnson & Johnson. Myron Levin joins us now. He says these studies go back a long way. Yes, at least to the early 70s when a British study, actually in 1971, reported that an analysis under microscope of 13 ovarian tumors found talc particles in 10. And since then, there have been a number of studies in the U.S. and in Europe as well, I gather. Yes, that's true. There have been a number of studies beginning in 1982 and uh, many others to follow which not universally, but in most cases, certainly have found that women who use talc for feminine hygiene have higher rates of ovarian cancer than women who don't. On average, about a 35% higher risk. That's a significant risk if you use talcum powder, but those studies don't offer a mechanism for this or prove that it's causal. So what are the ideas here? Well, the idea is, first of all, that the talc can travel through the genital tract to the ovaries and that the inflammation that then is caused by talc particles being deposited there leads to cancer. Talk to me, Myron, about the statistics on ovarian cancer and what proportion could possibly be linked to talc? They're in the neighborhood of 21,000 cases diagnosed in the United States every year, and about 14,000 people die a year. Researchers who believe there is a definite causal link say that use of talcum powder could be the cause of up to 10% or in the neighborhood of 2,100 cases of ovarian cancer a year. So this is an issue that goes back some 40 years. Why is it coming to the fore today? Well, as you know, much of what constitutes our regulatory system in this country now is the civil courts. Decisions probably that should be made somewhere else are resolved by people filing lawsuits against major companies and scientists and experts being arrayed on both sides to argue about what the evidence is. And that's why this has happened. There was a lawsuit that was uh, tried to a verdict in 2013. A woman named Deanne Berg, who had ovarian cancer, asserted that a significant cause was her use over many years of talc powder for feminine hygiene, sued Johnson & Johnson. The jury found that Johnson & Johnson was liable for not warning of the risk of ovarian cancer, but strangely awarded no damages to Deanne Berg. What do you make of this verdict? It's kind of mystifying, isn't it? She was stage three. Her prognosis was very bad, but she's doing very well, and so she didn't die, okay? But she certainly suffered financial losses from missed work, from medical bills, a tremendous amount of pain, some permanent loss of feelings in her hands and feet, some hearing loss. And so if you find that they should have warned her and they didn't, you would think that they would give her some money. 
We tracked down the jury foreperson and asked her about this, and she just said that we thought they should have put a warning on, but we did not believe that the medical evidence was so persuasive that we concluded that her cancer actually was caused by her use of talc. How many cases are now pending against Johnson & Johnson by women who feel that they were exposed to things that led to ovarian cancer as a result of using the J&J products? They're in the neighborhood of 700, most of them in St. Louis and in New Jersey where Johnson & Johnson is headquartered. But the numbers are still going up, so there probably will be more. How are the folks bringing these claims addressing the mechanism question? Well, they did offer theories about how it happened in the Berg case. That's the only case that's been tried. But proving things to a scientific certainty is not necessarily required in a civil trial. It has to be more probable than not in the minds of a jury that harm was caused by the defendant. So even if that isn't proven to the satisfaction of Johnson & Johnson or to many scientists, it doesn't mean that they're home free. What's uh, Johnson & Johnson's argument when it comes to this association? Johnson & Johnson says talc powder does not cause ovarian cancer, so we had no reason to warn. They say that there's no biological mechanism for causation proven. And the types of studies generally that found a higher risk introduced what's called recall bias because people who have an illness or any kind of adverse health outcome tend to remember exposures or habits or things they did better than people that are healthy. So it makes it appear, in other words, that more people who have ovarian cancer you know, use these products than didn't. What regulatory bodies have determined that talc may in fact be carcinogenic? IARC, the International Agency for Research on Cancer, which is part of the World Health Organization, considered this in 2005 and 6 and came to a finding that talc was what they call a 2B possible human carcinogen when used in this manner. There's a lot of products that are in that category, and so the industry's tried to sort of dismiss this as being insignificant, but they were very, very upset when this happened. Basically, what IARC said was that there's a remarkable consistency of these epidemiological studies. On the other hand, confounding factors and biases can't be ruled out. But other agencies have considered this and decided to make no finding because there wasn't enough evidence. And what attracted you to this particular story? You know, we're in a world of very ominous-sounding, unpronounceable chemicals. What could be seemingly less ominous than talc? It's only four letters. We put it on babies' bottoms. It's in all manner of industrial products as well as consumer products that are used up close and personal. You just sort of have no idea if you're the ordinary consumer that there might be a risk here. Myron Levin is founder of the investigative journalism site Fair Warning. Thanks so much for taking the time today, Myron. Well, thank you. There is more information about the suspected links between talc and ovarian cancer, Johnson & Johnson's statement, and Myron Levin's reporting at our website, loe.org. She's a tireless champion of children's health. That's the accolade Dr. Frederica Pereira received as she recently won the 2015 Heinz Environmental Award. The jurors honored Dr. Pereira with the $250,000 prize for her, quote, research and advocacy that laid the groundwork for a robust body of evidence on the links between environmental toxins and childhood disorders. 
Dr. Pereira is Professor of Environmental Health Sciences and Founding Director of the Columbia Center for Children's Environmental Health. She joins us now on the line from New York. Welcome to Living on Earth, and congratulations. Thank you very much. So you've done so many things over the years. What were some of the watershed moments for you? I think that watershed moment was in the early 1980s. I was researching environmental causes of cancer, specifically lung cancer. And at that time, I really did not know or understand the extent to which children were being exposed to environmental contaminants even before they were born. I was using DNA from what were thought to be pristine control cord blood placental samples from newborns in these studies of adult cancer. And to my surprise, I found that these so-called pristine, untouched samples from newborns showed molecular fingerprints, not only of exposure, but of DNA damage linked to cancer. And that was a real wake-up call for me to go ahead and learn more about the potential risk from these very early exposures. What sorts of chemicals were you seeing in that blood? I was interested in getting a biologic marker or molecular fingerprint of exposure in blood of the chemical that is found in air pollution from combustion of fossil fuel like traffic emissions, coal plant emissions, oil burning, and also is found in tobacco smoke. It's a powerful carcinogen, and it's called benzoapyrene. It's a PAH, or polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbon. And it definitely should not have been in those samples from newborn babies, I thought. And we really needed to learn more. This early work led me, with my colleague Bernie Weinstein, to propose a whole new approach to the study of environmentally related disease. We called it molecular epidemiology because we were incorporating molecular approaches into epidemiology, which is the study of causes of human disease. And the whole idea here was to use this approach to prevent disease, helping us understand the links between exposure and disease and flag risks early before disease was entrenched so we could actually do something about it to interrupt the process. Talk to me about some of the practical applications of what you discovered, this molecular epidemiology approach that you developed? I and my colleagues have applied it here to better understand the causes of the diseases in children that are so common and were escalating back when I was beginning. Childhood asthma, obesity, ADHD, autism. And we found that not only did air pollutants play a role, but also that we were finding many different synthetic organic chemicals in blood or urine from pregnant mothers and also from the newborn cord blood. And they included bisphenol A and phthalates, both found in plastics, the flame retardant PBDEs, and pesticides like chlorpyrifos. And so we used this tool to study to enroll pregnant women and follow their children from before birth to learn about the impacts on children's health and development of the mother's exposure during pregnancy. And these studies occurred in not only New York City, but Poland and China. And we have found evidence that all of these exposures can play a role in various of the health outcomes that we were concerned about in children, neurodevelopmental problems, and even increased risk of cancer. And very strikingly, we've found some evidence that certain of these exposures may also 
alter the anatomical development of the brain early on. What are the largest sources of the chemicals of concern? The chemicals that we and others are finding in children's bodies come from many different products that are used in everyday life. Consumer products, components of buildings, furniture, cosmetics, and found in our food. Many of them get into our food. These exposures are largely involuntary. That is, individuals don't have control over them. Now, Dr. Pereira, you've testified in Congress urging uh, revisions in the Toxic Substances Control Act. Hasn't happened so far. What else have we learned in recent times that suggests that perhaps now is the time that that law should be changed to reflect your research and and others' research? There are now 80,000 chemicals in use, and only 7%, according to EPA, had a complete set of toxicity screening data. That's a big problem, that chemicals have been manufactured and released to the environment and are now capable of reaching our bodies and the bodies of our developing fetuses and young children. We do need a change in that regulatory structure to require pre-manufactured testing to look at the chemicals and exposures that are most harmful. It's a question of shifting the burden from individuals or researchers or even EPA to show that there's a problem with chemicals to the manufacturers to show that they are actually safe. The good news is that once we identify as harmful environmental exposures, they by their very nature are preventable. And the potential benefits are huge. The cost of a childhood illness due to environmental contaminants in 2008 were estimated at $76 billion. Dr. Pereira, this is all pretty uh, depressing stuff, what these chemicals can do. What makes you optimistic? Well, I'm optimistic that robust science can help drive preventive policies. The research from our center has been credited with prompting changes at the local level to reduce emissions from traffic and also residential heating and to eliminate toxic pesticides in city housing. We also were able to show that there are some economic benefits when we reduce pollution that can play out over the lifetimes of the children and also possibly into future generations. Dr. Frederica Pereira is Professor of Environmental Health Sciences and founding director of the Columbia Center for Children's Environmental Health and winner of the Heinz Environmental Prize this year. Congratulations, and thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you very much, Steve. I enjoyed it. Back in 2007, new federal rules went into effect that sharply reduced sulfur in diesel fuel, which is mostly used in trucks and buses, and new diesel vehicles have to run much cleaner. The goal is to achieve a 90% reduction in particulate pollution, which is hazardous to health, with the elderly and children most at risk. But many older school buses don't have the new pollution control systems, and new ones are expensive. So at the urging of the EPA, many states, including Pennsylvania, now limit the idling of school buses, especially where kids line up. Julie Grant from the public radio program The Allegheny Front has our report from Pittsburgh. It's 15 minutes before school lets out for the day, and buses are lined up on the street by a Pittsburgh school building. Some of them are idling, or sitting there, running the engine. It's a sunny, cool day. That's true. It's um, probably in the 40s or so. Rachel Filippini is with GASP, the group against smog and pollution. She says 
Even if it were below freezing, state law says buses are not allowed to idle. Regardless of the temperature, the law says you, you have to turn off your engine um, within five minutes. Filippini says GASP has been monitoring buses in the Pittsburgh School District to see if they're following the state's no idling law. They're worried about kids' health on board the bus and sitting in nearby classrooms where diesel fumes can waft in. Filippini says particles in diesel fumes are so tiny they can make their way deep into the lungs and the blood. They're kind of sticky and are irregularly shaped, and they have um, sometimes other toxics or heavy metals that are stuck onto them. And those things which you do not want to be inhaling are getting a free ride into your body where they can cause a lot of problems. The federal government says diesel exhaust is a likely cause of lung cancer, as well as asthma attacks, chronic bronchitis, and heart disease. Sue Roning thinks buses are cleaner than they used to be. Actually, I think being around bu school buses my entire life, I can tell a difference just walking outside here. Roenig's family owns a bus company that contracts with Pittsburgh and other school districts in the region. At their garage in rural Sarver, a half hour north of Pittsburgh, the country air can fill up with exhaust fumes. Like in the morning when the buses are out, lined up, ready to go to pick up students, my eyes don't water anymore when I walk through the parking lot, so that has to be something. So I think, I think there is a big difference, actually. Beginning in 2007, the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency started limiting the pollution, the particulate matter, and oxides of nitrogen from heavy-duty diesel vehicles. Companies that run school buses must either retrofit their exhaust systems or, when they purchase new buses, buy vehicles with pollution controls built in. The Heinz Endowments offered a half million dollars in 2007 to area bus companies to retrofit them with new filters. But Roenigs was one of the only companies to take them up on the offer. I think it was probably was just a matter of a lot of people at the time, you know, holding back just to wait to see how it actually worked out. Because sometimes you do things and it sounds really good on paper and it doesn't turn out that way. And I thought it was going to be, you know, a disaster. That's Roning's mechanic, Bill Ross. But this really worked good. It really did. The Allegheny County Health Department says they don't know of a central database tracking how many school buses have the cleaner technology. But they estimate that around three-fourths should have lower emissions since the law went into effect. Sue Roenig says some of the new buses they've purchased won't let drivers idle, not even to warm up on a winter morning. They just shut off, you know. Every 10 minutes you have to go restart them trying to get these motors warmed up. Makes for long mornings sometimes. Research shows when everyone in an area uses cleaner vehicles, it can make a real difference in air quality. Albert Presto studies air pollution at Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh. When these technologies are working well, they can reduce over 90% of the particulate matter emissions from diesel vehicles. That's right, he said 90% cleaner. Presto gives the example of Oakland, California. Which is an enormous seaport. California forced old trucks running from the port to storage facilities to reduce their emissions quickly. And Presto says it worked. They significantly reduced diesel pollution. And that helped improve air quality, you know, at the port and in neighborhoods near the port. Pennsylvania is moving toward the same diesel control standards as California. But so far, Presto says it's been difficult to parse out the impact of cleaner school buses in a city like Pittsburgh. There are so many older diesel buses and trucks still on the road without pollution controls. Back at that Pittsburgh school, clean air advocate Rachel Filippini says construction sites and even riverboats can cause more diesel pollution than school buses. 
But buses have such a direct impact on children, especially when they idle. Filipinis group GASP has given schools signs that say no idling to post at pickup zones. The day we were there, some drivers idled anyway, but many did shut down their engines. So this is a vast improvement from what I saw last fall. Filippini says when they monitored buses that time, more than a quarter of the buses surveyed were idling. And she says that's too many. The Department of Environmental Protection says they've gone after some drivers for idling too long. But Filippini says better enforcement could go a long way to keeping the air cleaner for kids. I'm Julie Grant. Julie reports for the public radio program, The Allegheny Front. Okay, we'll head off to Conyers, Georgia now to see what Peter Dykstra has dug up in the world beyond the headlines. Peter's with Environmental Health News, that's ehn.org, and thedailyclimate.org, and he's on the line. Hey there, Peter. Hi, Steve. Let's start with another blow in the so-called war on coal, this time from those tree-hugging, capitalism-hating folks at the Bank of America. Well, I had no idea that banks hated capitalism so much, or, hey, maybe, Peter, there's a touch of sarcasm in there? Yeah, just a touch. At its annual meeting, the Bank of America announced that it's pulling back from many key investments in the coal industry, saying they're reducing our credit exposure to the coal mining sector globally. So can the fossil fuel divestment movement take any credit for this? Yes, they can. The bank acknowledged several years' worth of pressure from activist groups, but said they'll continue to promote what they call the responsible use of coal. But make no mistake, this is a very big bank, and it's about money first and foremost, which brings us to another Living on Earth stock report. Yes, stock reports, precisely why people tune in to Living on Earth, huh? Right, but here's an update on the continued collapse of coal stocks. It's gotten much worse since we talked about this several months ago. In 2011, Arch Coal, one of America's biggest producers, peaked at about $38 a share. It's now just below $1, officially a penny stock. Another coal giant, Alpha Natural Resources, has gone from $75 to about $0.78 cents in that same time frame. Both companies have been warned by the New York Stock Exchange that they could be delisted. The Bank of America may hear climate activists talking, but that's some money talk that's too loud to ignore. And one more, Patriot Coal, a big player in the eastern U.S., filed for bankruptcy for the second time this past week. So a lot of folks in the coal industry who have never accepted the science on climate change are up against, uh, what, the big bank theory, huh? Oh, nice one. Let's move on to another item from the fossil fuel world. Having obtained a crucial approval from the Obama administration, Shell says it's headed back to the Arctic for offshore oil exploration. They're doing so despite a whole host of apparent reasons why maybe they shouldn't. Well, the most obvious one being fossil fuels and climate change, but that's never stopped oil exploration before. Sure, but also Shell's abortive first attempt in 2012 was a comedy of errors and Coast Guard safety violations. In addition, the U.S. Bureau of Ocean Energy Management said six months ago that Arctic drilling carried a 75% chance of at least one significant spill and dealing with an oil spill in the cold, stormy, and for the moment, ice-choked Arctic would be a daunting task. But then there's the thousand-pound polar bear in the room. Oh, what's that? Extracting oil from the Arctic is almost prohibitively expensive, and despite some recent jumps in oil prices, petroleum products are still going cheap. We're way under $100 a barrel for the foreseeable future. The USGS, among others, have estimated that oil prices would have to be anywhere from $100 a barrel to $300 a barrel to give Arctic oil drilling even a slim chance of being profitable, let alone safe. So unless Shell knows something we don't, the numbers don't add up. Hey, what's the stop on the history train this week? 
Let's pay tribute to thinking ahead and the value of smart science. 60 years ago this week, the U.S. Forest Service established the Hubbard Brook Experimental Forest in New Hampshire. 3,000 acres of protected forest where geeks can play with trees. Hubbard Brook has provided invaluable information about forest ecosystems and protecting streams, and it's been one of the most important research sites in the world for learning about acid rain. And of course, we've covered the problems and progress on the acid rain issue over the years. And in addition to Hubbard Brook, whose work continues, we should mention Canada's Experimental Lakes Area in Ontario, another pioneer in acid rain science, which Canada's federal government put on the chopping block two years ago. But a mix of private and provincial money came to the rescue and is keeping this landmark facility alive. And moving science forward. Peter Dykstra is with Environmental Health News at ehn.org and thedailyclimate.org. Hey, Peter, thanks for taking the time today. All right, Steve, thanks a lot. We'll talk to you soon. And if you want to hear more or see more on these stories, go to our website, LOE.org. Coming up, they're cute, they have brightly colored bills, and they're back. Puffins are just ahead on Living on Earth. Stay tuned. Funding for Living on Earth comes from United Technologies, a provider to the aerospace and building systems industries worldwide. UTC Building and Industrial Systems provides building technologies and supplies, container refrigeration systems that transport and preserve food, and medicine with brands such as Otis, Carrier, Chubb, Edwards, and Kidda. This is PRI, Public Radio International. Environmental success stories are favorites here at Living on Earth. So we were excited to read a new book called Project Puffin, the improbable quest to bring a beloved seabird back to Egg Rock. One of the book's co-authors and photographer is Boston Globe editor and columnist Derek Jackson. It's pretty funny for me because I started off as a sports writer, and so once upon a time, the only birds I knew about were the Atlanta Hawks, the Philadelphia Eagles, and the St. Louis Cardinals and Baltimore Orioles. But because my wife's an outdoor person, I got into the outdoors, and I heard about these puffins. And at that time, the success of it was only five years old. So it was still pretty exciting to be on, on a place where life that had been lost had been restored. That restoration was the work of the book's other co-author, Steve Kress. Steve is the vice president of the National Audubon Society, and since his early 20s, he has been working to restore the historic puffin population to Egg Rock off the coast of northern Maine. Steve says his devotion to the puffin was rooted in a childhood spent close to the birds and bees. As a kid, I was fortunate in meeting ornithologists and other birders, and they shared their passion and their enthusiasm with me, and I caught the bug of enjoying being out in nature. It started with non-birds. It started with lizards, actually. The blue-tailed skink was my greatest of prizes as a child. But any frog or turtle or reptile, anything I could actually get my hands on was terrifically interesting. So, yeah, that's how it all started. And then it just sort of stuck from there. And I just kept meeting more people and realizing a relatively small world of birders out there. And there's so much interconnection. And all pathways sort of pointed me toward Hog Island, which is sort of where ornithology had its beginning in the northeastern United States. How's, how's that? Well, there was this, there's this beautiful island, a 330-acre pristine island, spruce-covered island offshore near Damariscotta, Maine. 
where Roger Torrey Peterson, the sort of undisputed father of birding in the United States, was the first bird instructor. Alan Cruikshank, another famed early American birder, and others have followed. And they just sort of started a tradition of people coming there and learning about birds. I started working at the Audubon camp in Maine in 1969 and learned that puffins once bred about eight miles from where I was working on Hog Island. And once I discovered that those islands were once home to puffins, I couldn't see them the same as I used to. I saw them as places that were devoid of life rather than full of life. It was a strange twist of perspective. But once I realized that they were a diminished place, I began setting out to try to bring them back. I didn't know that it would, I would be at this for decades. When I started this, I thought, oh, this is just going to take a few years and then I'll be on to something else. But it hasn't worked out that way. <laughs> I guess not. So what made you think that you could restore these puffins to the places that uh, they had been hunted off, uh, what, almost a century before? The idea of bringing the puffins back probably was influenced by other bird conservation projects at the time. Notably, the Peregrine Fund was starting its work at Cornell, trying to reestablish the peregrine falcon, a bird that had disappeared because of the use of DDT. It was still a novel idea, and many people at the time felt that it was better just to let nature take its course. And the species that were best adapted to living with humanity would be the ones that would be the, the future co-inhabitants of the planet. And if we lose some along the way, they were the ones that just didn't fit anymore. And I suppose this philosophy struck you with, let's see, who cohabits with people best? Roaches, rats, things that we don't particularly like. So I've come to realize that the species that benefit the most from people are, uh, tend to be scavengers. And yes, the, the species that seem to do the best often are considered nuisance species by people. In the bird world, that would include lots of native birds, not just introduced species, but natives like gulls, herring, and blackback gulls were the most obvious example of that uh, along the main coast, scavenging behind fishing boats and garbage dumps. So if that was the pattern, then we were going to lose birds like the puffins, and there was nobody out there really trying to help these specialized species, especially if they were not an endangered species. Endangered birds had a certain cachet just from their rareness, but common species, not necessarily, especially species that were still nesting in the millions, and the puffin was among those. You could find millions of them if you would just travel to Iceland. And some would say to me, why should you bother to restore a common species when people want to see them, they just should go to Iceland. And I felt like, well, we lost them on the main coast. Perhaps it was the proper thing to do to bring them back. Now, you got to say, if you look at a puffin, it's hard not to, well, come on, laugh. <laughs> They're roly-poly. They have this brightly colored beak. They stand up erect, but they kind of waddle. They almost look like a penguin. And, well, they're charming, right? Puffins are charming birds. They kind of are caricatures of the human form. They're upright, they stroll, they waddle back and forth, and they have this uh, comical uh, face, clown-like face. So yeah, they are sort of built in endearing. Of course, it's all very functional from their point of view. Their feet are all the way to the back because they use them as rudders underwater. And they have those short wings they hold to their sides because they use them as 
a flipper's likes underwater. It's all about function, but it also uh, happens to characterize a human clown-like form, which people love. And you in particular, I mean, these birds sucked you right in. I mean, of all birds that you could have chosen to devote your life to, although I gather at the time you didn't realize it's going to be a lifelong exercise. I mean, are there any that are cuter than this? I don't think there's any that are cuter than a puffin. <laughs> <laughs> so you decide at age 20 that you are going to figure out a way to save these birds, to bring them back to this to the place where they had been. How did you start? I started the idea of bringing puffins back by learning as much as I could about them. A few things I learned was that, was that puffins lay just one egg. They don't usually lay it until they're several years old. And the, interestingly enough... At the end of the breeding cycle, which is about six weeks long, the chicks head off to sea by themselves, not with the parents, which was very helpful to me in my plan because there was no way I was going to be able to follow these chicks to sea. But the key part of this story was that they learned where home was while they were at the island. My hope was that I could find puffin chicks that were impressionable and that I could move them before they had learned where their hatching island was hand rear them, release them, and give them the opportunity to learn about the release site, the new home. That method is called translocation now, and it's widely used, but at the time, it was never used before for a seabird. So where can you get sort of, you know, extra spare baby puffins? Mm. Fortunately, there are still large colonies of puffins in Canada, and I had to travel all the way to, to Great Island, Newfoundland, and with the cooperation of the Canadian Wildlife Service and with their help, uh, we climbed down the cliffs of Great Island where there, were, at the time, were about 160,000 pairs of puffins. It was an awesome sight. We moved as many as 200 of them at a time. And how do you move a baby puffin? You pick the puffin up, take it out of its burrow, put it in a specially built carrying case, and then as fast as you can, you bring it back to uh, Maine. I don't imagine Ma and Pa Puffin were too thrilled about this. Well, when you reach into a Puffin burrow, you have to be careful. Because if the parent Puffins are in there, that big, colorful, cuddly-looking beak is actually quite a crusher. And if, it, if they grab hold of your finger and they start twisting and shaking with a raptor-like hook, which they have, uh, it can be damaging. But we did it, and we reached into enough Puffin burrows, and we were able to obtain enough puffins to bring them back. We tried not to revisit the same puffin burrow in more than one year so that we didn't have ongoing disturbance to the same pair of parent puffins. And most of the chicks survived that we brought from Newfoundland. They are very hardy little birds. And they trucked off to sea with our bands and disappeared in the darkness. You brought hundreds of birds from Canada to Egg Rock Island where you hoped that you'd get a new Puffin colony, but how would you know if you had succeeded? The only way we would know whether we were having success was to see the puffins uh, come back. And we put leg bands on them before they fledged, that is, before they left the island, so we would recognize them in the future. A metal band on one leg and usually a color leg band, a plastic band on the other leg, and then we just had to sit out there and wait. And the, and the thing is that we had to wait four years without seeing anything at all. Four years into the project, we had released several hundred puffins and none of them had come back. I was starting to get questions from the supporters, the providers of the puffins from the Canadian Wildlife Service were wondering, 
What is going on? When are you going to have some success? I ask for patience. No one's ever done this before. We have to see this out because if we fail at this, other people in the future probably won't want to try something similar. And there's a great need. Even then I knew there were many rare seabirds that would benefit from this project if we could prove success. So big goose egg so far, or maybe big puffin egg so far, but no birds back. So this is the point that you're about to give up, but well, by the title of your book, obviously you didn't. What happened? In four years, we needed to have some success. And so I began trying to think like a puffin. And I realized that one of the things that was missing was the fact that there were no other puffins on the island. Puffins are social birds. They nest in colonies. And a young puffin coming back, even if it did remember egg rock, might not come ashore without the sight of other puffins. So I came up with the idea of using decoys. So we got some decoys, specially made, specially carved, not something you can buy off the shelf anyplace. Put some in the water, put some on land, and we didn't have to wait very long before a puffin showed up. Within days, there was a puffin there, landed on the island first, and then it landed with the decoys on land, and it had our leg bands. I was so excited. So puffins like a party, huh? Puffins don't like to be alone. They like other puffins. Now, puffins do land with decoys, we discovered, and they'll pick at the beaks, and they'll pick at the belly, and eventually they will get bored, and they'll leave because they're not getting much response, and, and they're not really fooled by the decoy for long. But I, I decided to put out mirrors, boxes with mirrors on all sides, and the puffins would land with the decoys, then they'd waddle up to see the reflection in the mirror, and they would just sit there and look at themselves. And they move a little bit, the reflection would move. I don't think they really were totally fooled by this to think it's another puffin. But what did happen was that other puffins would land with the puffins that were sitting among the decoys and the mirrors. And eventually we started seeing more and more puffins sitting on the island. So you've created a puffin party by having models. That always helps a party scene. You have mm. a mirror ball, that helps a party scene. Mm. But what about the sound? We didn't use sound for puffins, recorded sound. Later, when I started attracting terns, I started using recorded sounds for terns, and that has proved to be very attractive for the terns. With puffins, I was trying to keep it simple, and puffins are not all that loud. They don't call a lot, especially at that stage in their lifetime. Later in life, they have a deep growling call. They sound sort of like this. That's a call between a mated pair. But the prospecting birds, these young birds, they don't call much. So we wanted to try to keep it as simple as we could. And the mirrors, the decoys, they started coming back, but they still weren't breeding. We were eight years into this project, still no nesting. So what do you do then? I mean, uh, if these birds aren't propagating themselves, you're going to be bringing chicks from Canada forever. And even a greater concern was that some of our birds that we brought from Canada started nesting on a nearby puffin colony, Matinicus Rock. Traders. I was worried that they would move over there after all my efforts, so close but so far. Eight years into the project, the critics were really uh, becoming increasingly vocal at that point that this had not worked. Stop spending money on it. Stop saying that it's working. We still needed birds 
breeding. And that's why in 1981, on the 4th of July, when we saw the first puffin flying in with fish, that's the clue we were looking for. Finally, we had success at Egg Rock. Flying in with fish to? Feed its chick. They fly in with fish, and then they drop under the rocks, and they come out without the fish, and that's the sign we were looking for. That meant there was a puffin chick under the rocks, the first puffin chick in nearly 100 years. Steve, a number of people have emulated your, the techniques you developed in the Puffin Project. There are a number of bird restoration projects around the world. And in your own book, you, you wrestle with the question of sustainability. You say that people ask you, well, how sustainable is this? And your answer is, well, that's maybe not the right question. So what is the right question and what's the right answer? Project Puffin is showing that if you just don't do this kind of work, these species are not going to come back. To stop this kind of work, they probably still will disappear. But they are still capable of living in this environment with a helping hand. When I was a young man, one of my mentors, Duryea Morton, pointed out to me that people are the only species that can make other animals go extinct. People therefore have the opportunity, perhaps even an obligation, to be the only species that can help sustain life on Earth. Because if we stop, these species that have been affected by humans will disappear. We live in a time of extinction, and without active intervention, we can be sure that we will lose species. And if we do, future generations will not have the opportunity to do the restoration that we have today. Steve Kress and Derek Jackson are co-authors of the book Project Puffin, The Improbable Quest to Bring a Beloved Seabird Back to Egg Rock. Steve, thanks for taking the time today. My pleasure. Next time on Living on Earth, change is inevitable. And Lester Brown says a total transformation is coming to the way we power our civilization. The exciting thing about this is how fast it's going to happen. I think we're going to see a half century of change compressed into the next decade. The great transition to a renewable energy economy, that's next time on Living on Earth. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Naomi Ehrenberg, Bobby Baskin, Emma Fitzgerald, Lauren Hinkle, Helen Palmer, Adelaide Chen, Jenny Doring, John Duff, James Kerwood, and Jennifer Marquis. Our show is engineered by Tom Tiger with help from Jake Rigo, Noel Flatt, and John Jesso. Allison Lirish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org and like us, please, on our Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on Earth, and we tweet from at Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communication and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. The Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet, and Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. Living on Earth is also supported by Stonyfield Farm, makers of organic yogurt, smoothies, and more www.stonyfield.com PRI Public Radio International